It's, uh, Christ has many titles, and uh, it's great to have the D2 team take uh, a couple minutes and uh, rehearse just uh, a number of them. There are more than that. It is uh, quite remarkable. It's great to have the choir uh, back leading us today, and uh, good to see you on this gorgeous weekend. A couple weeks ago, I was reading an article in which the uh, writer was recounting uh, a job interview he recently had. And in the course of this job interview, fairly early on, the interviewer asked him what his clout number was. And the, the person writing the article, the person being interviewed, said uh, he didn't know what uh, his clout number was. In fact, he didn't even know what a clout number was. And the interviewer explained, there's this website, clout.com, spelled with a K, K K-L-O-U-T, and it measures your influence. He then, uh, the interviewer, then uh, typed in some information into the, onto a website at clout.com from this guy that he was interviewing, and uh, he then very promptly did two things. He reported to the writer that his clout score turned up to be a 32 and he rather abruptly ended the interview. 32 is not a very high clout score. The, the writer went on to say that the person they hired instead of him had a clout score of 65, and that he had been working diligently over the last six months and had raised his clout score to 70. He then went on to say, everybody has a clout score. You better be paying attention to yours. After all, Everyone else is paying attention to your clout score. Well, against my better judgment, I got up, walked over to the computer, went to (laughs) clout.com, entered my name, a couple other data points, and proceeded to see that my clout number is a 17. (laughs) Which, while it doesn't exactly uh, light up and say, uh, loser, it suggests that if I were in fourth grade, I'd get beat up on recess every time it happened. So I shared this story um, about an hour later when we sat down for dinner, at which point one of my boys got up, walked over to cloud.com, typed in his own name, and said, well, look, I'm a 38. <laughs> and in... Uh, preparation for today's message, I went back to clout.com, typed in my name, see if my score had changed. Indeed, it had. It had gone down. (laughs) I'm very glad that we are beginning a series in which I get to look at somebody who actually has uh, a much higher clout score. In fact, we're going to look at somebody who has the highest clout score ever, and no one else comes close. We're going to look at the most influential person who ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth. If you um, read the first chapter in the life of uh, Jesus Christ, this book that is this sort of uh, backdrop to the series that, that we're beginning, then you, uh, if you read the first chapter, you, you heard me make uh, an argument. I said, look, Jesus Christ is the most influential person who ever lived. He's the greatest teacher who ever lived. And he claimed to be God. You probably know less about him than you think. Uh, There are good reasons to think that he is God. 
it's quite clear if you pay attention to what he said that he could not be the one thing many people try to make him, and that is not God but a good man. And then finally, the last point I make there is to say uh, you need to pay attention to this because the stakes around Jesus are high. Well, I want to push a little bit further around this first point today. The idea that Jesus is the most influential person who ever lived. I'd like us to at least acknowledge how remarkable it is that we're still talking about him 2,000 years later. Most people's influence begins to wane after they die. Christ's has grown every year for the last 2,000. He had made a regional impact during his life. Today, he is history's most familiar figure. And this is true in spite of the fact that he lived 2,000 years ago. It's true in spite of the fact that, that he lived in the flyover region of the Roman Empire. It's true in spite of the fact that he spent the first 30 years of his life in obscurity and was dead before he was 34. Jesus didn't do any of the things that you would expect him to do if, in fact, he wanted to be remembered. And yet, he is history's most familiar figure. He didn't write a book. He didn't build a building. He didn't run for office. He didn't conquer any land. He was not LinkedIn, right? He did not tweet. He did not have a blog. He had no friends on Facebook. He did none of the things that you might expect someone to do if they wanted to be remembered. And yet he is history's most familiar figure. If you look back uh, in history at that time, you see what people were doing when they really wanted to leave a legacy. One of the things they would do is to name cities after themselves. So Caesarea was named after Caesar, and Constantinople was named after Constantine. Jesus didn't name any place after him. And yet, if you look at a map today, and you know what to look for, you see his influence virtually everywhere. Our oldest son lives in uh, just outside of Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic. That is a city and a country named after a 12th century leader, a Christian leader, um, who was noted for starting the Dominicans. Our, my brother, one of them, lives southwest of here in St. Charles, Illinois a town named after a 16th century Christian leader who was noted and noteworthy because of his efforts to, to help people during the plague. Every saint something right, is named in one way, shape, or form after someone whose chief identity is as a Christ follower. And that, that, that not only means, right, St. Louis, St. Paul, St. George. It also means all the sort of derivations of the word saint because of other languages. So San means the same thing. San Francisco, San Diego, San Antonio, or Saul, Saul Paulo, or Santa Lucia. All of these are named after saints. All of them are named after people whose chief identity is that they are a follower of Christ. And it's not just the saint somethings. There are many other towns that, that reflect Jesus in some way, shape, or form. I was born in Moline, Illinois. Moline means cross. Who made the cross famous? Sacramento, California is named after the sacraments, those things that we would do in order to lean into the grace 
of Christ. Right? Once you know what to look for, you see that although he didn't name anything after himself, the map is filled with references to Christ. Additionally, one of the things that people would do back then is that they would try to restart the calendar with the year of their birth or the year of their reign. And so, for instance, we read in Luke's Gospel where it says, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, right? That's how Tiberius Caesar wanted everything to be dated. He wanted to say, I am the reference point, right? I am the hinge point of history. Everybody needs to look to me. It wasn't just Roman and Greek leaders that did this. The French tried to reset the calendar after the Enlightenment, starting with the, the date of the Age of Reason. The Soviets tried to reset the calendar around the date of the, the, the Revolution and the birth of Communism. Right? People try to reset the calendar and say, I am the most important thing that happened. Jesus doesn't do this. And yet, today, right, he is the hinge point of history. When we write a date... It goes back to his birth. You could go on. Names. It's not just important people don't just name uh, uh, cities after themselves and ports after themselves and ships after themselves. They would name, of course, their own children after themselves. And uh, Herod and Nero and Caesar would do this. And so Herod was just... Sort of like George Foreman, uh, a couple thousand years before George Foreman. You know, George is famously named all his children, including his girls, George Foreman. Uh, Herod did the same thing with all of his children. And these are the big names back then, Herod, Nero, and Caesar. Well, remarkably today, those names are used for pizza parlors <laughs> and casinos, right, and animals. And although Jesus had no children that he named after himself, it is the name of, names of his followers, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Mary. These are the names that people name their children. My name is uh, Mike. Michael is a biblical name. So when I say I'm Mike Woodruff, born in Moline, Illinois in 1960... And let me just pause here for those of you who want to do the math and say <laughs> 51 for a couple more months. So stay with me. When I say Mike Woodruff, born in Moline, Illinois in 1960, I'm giving three reference points back to Jesus. Right? It's, it's remarkable. He is history's most influential, most familiar figure. Right? This this. Never write a book, itinerant carpenter living in the first century. Three years of public life, right? He is the one that everybody points back to. He didn't write a book, but in fact, more books have been written about him than have been written about any other single person in history. And three new books about Jesus come off the press every month. More music has been written in his honor than for anyone else. More art has been inspired by him or dedicated to him than any other person. Right? More acts of service have been done in his name. Hospitals, orphanages, prison reform, schools, all of these things done in the name of Jesus Christ. His followers saying, I'm doing it because of Christ. It's, it's remarkable. 
His influence in the world is remarkable. And I would like to highlight today three things that Jesus did that are largely overlooked. Three ways he has shaped our world that are, that are not generally appreciated. The first one is that uh, Jesus raised the perceived value of human life. Jesus established the, the idea that everybody has worth. This was not a common idea in the ancient world. It was, it was not generally understood that uh, all people were created e- equal, right? That all people had value. That's not, that's not what Socrates said. That's not what Aristotle said. They didn't think that. It took Jesus to come along and to say that everyone, including, and to some extent especially, the have-nots, have value. Jesus elevated the status of women. He was born in a world where there were 140 men for every 100 women. Because it was very common for parents, if they had a girl, especially if they had a second girl, to simply expose her, which meant to take her out to the garbage heap and leave her there to die. Jesus lived in a, in a culture, in a Greek and Roman world, where, where women uh, were viewed as children no matter their age and where they had uh, no legal rights. Laws about women were laws about property. Jesus lived in an era where women didn't have the opportunity to go to school and many women didn't learn how to read. In that world... The longest recorded conversation we have of Jesus is with the Samaritan woman in which it's clear that he is listening to her. He values what she thinks. Conversation between Mary and Martha. Not fully appreciated in this day and age. Mary is uh, sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha is busy doing all the, the work to prepare for the guests. And Jesus says, Martha... Right? Mary has chosen a better path. Mary, in fact, had chosen a scandalous, radical, unthinkable path to go sit with the men and learn. Jesus elevated the status of women. He so fundamentally uh, changed the world at that time that, that, that women flocked to the movement that he started. So much so, in fact, that others disparaged the early church because it was just a woman's thing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Jesus gave women dignity. Prior to Jesus, women were regarded as inferior beings. Jesus elevated the status of women. Jesus elevated the status of children. Interesting book came out a couple years ago called When Children Became People, The Birth of of childhood in the early church. And in this book, the, the writer, a European uh, historian, says that um, you know, the reason that, that people didn't name their children right after birth is because it was quite common, again, to decide at some point not to keep them and to simply expose them, right? to put them out on the trash pile and to let them die. Well, this was outlawed by a Christian emperor who cites Christ saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to become like a child, and who invited the little children to come to him. 
Right? This, is, this is what changed the perspective of the value of children. Jesus Christ fundamentally raised their status. <clears throat> could go on and look at how Jesus changed the perceived value of the sick. In um, a book that was written by sociologist Rodney Stark, um, who just recently, he's been a sociologist largely of religion, historian, uh, academic, and he's been studying Christianity for probably three decades, just recently came to faith in Christ, declared that Jesus is, he now believes who Jesus claimed to be. Stark wrote a book that came out a few years ago called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. And he points out that in 150 AD, uh, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, there was an epidemic that broke out in the Roman Empire, which we now believe is smallpox, and a third of the people died. Well, he goes on to say about a um, hundred years later, there was another epidemic and 5,000 people were dying in Rome alone. Panic set in. People were abandoning anyone who got sick. Okay, there, was no, there was no idea, no ideal that was handed down from Homer or Zeus that if somebody gets sick, you should care for them. And so when people got sick, they were being hauled out to the street to die. Thucydides, uh, a Greek historian, writes this. They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which all the inhabitants perished through lack of any intention for care. The bodies of the dying were heaped up one on top of the other. No fear of God or law of man had any restraining influence. Well, this epidemic began to spread through the Roman Empire, and when it got to Rome, we saw more of the same happening. Again, this is Thucydides writing about this. And he says, At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease. What stopped that practice? Well, it was the followers of Christ who remembered that their Lord, right, went to the sick, went to the lepers, touched the lepers, that that motivated Christ's followers to say, we have to care for those who can't care for themselves. I'm reading a different third century historian, Dionysius. He writes, heedless of the danger The Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. Stark writes in his book, and he says, part of the reason Christianity grew so rapidly in the early days was because Christians were taking the infants that other people were abandoning. After it was made illegal to expose your child, Right? If you wanted to get rid of your child, where would you take it? Well, you would take it to a Christian because the Christians now believe the children had value and they would raise that child as their own. And so the, the church began to grow in part because the Christians were having all the kids and everybody else's kids. And it was Christians who were nursing the sick back to health. And when the, the sick were restored to health, they said, well, I'm not going back to the people who hauled me out into the street to die. I want to stay with you. And it was other people who looked at the way this community was caring for people that said, I'd actually like to be a part of something like that. 
And Stark also said he believes that part of what happened, part of the reason that the Christian church grew so quickly is because Christians developed immunities to diseases because they were caring for the sick that other people didn't have. Right? We just think, we just think you care for the sick. That's what you do. No, that's not what people did. It's what people do because Jesus told us to do it. Why are hospitals so frequently named St. Mark's or St. Jude's or St. Luke's or Good Shepherd or Good Samaritan? or Why is it the Red Cross? These are Christian endeavors. These are Christ followers saying, we are following this man who went to the sick, who went to the lepers, who told us that everybody has value. Jesus also raised the, the value, the understood perceived value of slaves. In the ancient world, slavery was common. It was not race-based like American slavery. You, you fell into slavery if you fell into debt or if you were captured somehow. And there were lots of slaves, and some were treated well, and many were treated quite poorly. There, there's a whole category of slaves who are described as people who had no face. Right? They were non-beings. Well, the church eventually, Christ followers eventually, brought an end to this. Brought an understanding that this was wrong. I'd like to say they did it very quickly. Uh, not as quickly as we might have liked. But they had to wrestle with the idea that the one that they believed was their master and lord actually didn't come as a master or a lord. He came as a servant and sometimes that word gets translated as a slave. Right? And, and he served others. And he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he washed the feet of his followers. He did everything backwards. He said, the way up is down. People had to rethink what greatness looked like in light of what Jesus said and how he lived. And so we see that it was Christ's followers who eventually would take the forefront in crusading for the abolition of slavery. Again, I'd love to say that, that the church was on the, always out front of this. In fact, when you study history, you see that there are periods of time when it's remarkable that Jesus sort of survived uh, the reputation of his followers. The Crusades, the Inquisition, there are a number of different times when Christ's followers, when we have made mistakes, when we have justified the exact opposite of what it is that Christ is calling us to do. But let's not miss the fact that it, it did happen because of Christ. This stuff happened. Jesus raised the perceived value of people. He not only embraced in a way that the Jews did not embrace their own policy of saying we need to care for widows and orphans and the alien. He went beyond that and said, oh, by the way, we also need to love and care for the tax collectors and the Samaritans and the lepers. <laughs> Jesus changed how we view each other. He raised the value of the have-nots. The second thing that Jesus did that's not really appreciated today is he elevated the life of the mind he he called on us to love god with our mind and that radically shifted the world 
I mean, there's, there's three big things that we can point to. They get traced back to Christ's call that we should embrace the life of the mind. The first would be the fact that it was, it was the church that pulled uh, Europe out of, the, out of the slide into darkness. If you read Thomas Cahill's book 10, 15 years ago, How the Irish Saved Civilization, you're familiar with some of this argument. But basically, when Rome eventually fell, in the 4th century, when the barbarians overtook Rome, the eternal city, and and all of Europe sort of plunged into what is frequently referred to as the Dark Ages, and literacy stopped, and books were burned, and, and civilization went drastically backward. It was Christians. In particular, it was, it was the Christians at the Irish monasteries that held on to books and learning. And they became sort of bastions of life and hope and human flourishing. And, and it's because they not only had copied and secured copies of the Bible, they would copied all the books they could get. When you read history of Europe, you are almost certainly reading books that were only saved by Irish monks who loved the life of the mind and who promoted literacy and learning. This is because of Jesus that this happened. Additionally, in terms of the life of the mind, it's, it's worth pointing out that it was Christians who gave us science. This is shocking to many people. They think Christianity and and science or science and faith sort of line up against each other. No. No. And and as a matter of fact, when you read the people who gave us science, right? Galileo and Copernicus and and, uh, Pascal and Newton. I mean, when you read it, they're all Christ followers. And they are going to give us science because, first of all, they believe that the world was created by a God of order and that by studying the world, by studying creation, they could learn more about the Creator. And they also believed that the world was good, ordered, but not God. So they could study it dispassionately and run experiments and test their ideas. Right? It's, it was Christians who gave birth to science. Hey, it's Christians, it's Christ's followers who gave us not just literacy and, and learning and promoted that throughout the globe, but also higher education. Right? The first universities, Oxford, Cambridge, and others, are started by Christ followers because they want to love God with their mind. The motto of Oxford is Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light. The motto at Harvard University when it was founded is that every student should be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well that the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, and to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, William and Mary, down the line, these institutions are started by Christ followers so that people can love God with their mind. 92% of the first 138 colleges are started uh, as Christian experiments. And this will, be, this will continue into the, through the 19th and into the early 20th century. And it's not just private colleges, it's state colleges. State colleges 100 years ago, almost all of the presidents of state colleges were Christians. They were pastors. A hundred years ago at the University of Illinois, 
a student was expelled. The University of Illinois, a hundred years ago, a student was expelled for skipping chapel. Higher education. It's a Christian-driven event because Christ told us to love God with our mind. Jesus changed the world in profound ways by, by telling us to engage our mind that God had given us. A third big category of how Jesus has, has shaped the world is he shaped how we think about right and wrong. Right? He, he, he moved the moral compass. There's several examples of this. I'll point out one of them is that he uh, sort of rescued humility. Before Christ, to be humble was considered a bad thing. Never a good thing. Right? You wanted to be, you wanted honor. You didn't want to admit that you didn't know something or you weren't as good as someone else. None of the Romans leaned in that direction or the Greeks. To be humble was to be weak. And it was, it was Christ's followers who had to deal with the fact that Christ was washing the feet of other people and saying that the way up is down, that they had to think differently about themselves. Right? There, there was a study done maybe uh, 10 years ago uh, at a European institution, European university, the Humility Project, a bunch of secular historians trying to get together and figure out what is it that happened that so fundamentally changed people's perspective on humility. Because it happened quickly. And they said, after this study, secular historians said, Jesus happened. Jesus changed the world's perspective on what greatness looked like, what greatness acted like. Additionally, Jesus changed how it is that we're to interact with people we're not getting along with. Right? This was... This was before Christ came along, right, the moral high ground was simply to limit revenge to the kind of thing that had been done to you. That was considered right, the high road. Just an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No more than that. And Jesus says, no, I want you to love your enemies. Let me read you his from his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Right? Jesus, Jesus changes the moral compass. He's the one that, that, that argues that to forgive somebody is an act of moral beauty, not an act of weakness. <clears throat> Men and women, go on. The, the, the number of things that Jesus Christ did that are profound and unappreciated are many. Suffice it to say, this uneducated, itinerant, never-wrote-a-book carpenter changed the world more than anyone else. 
He changed the way we think. This person who is the who is the, the, the biggest influencer of the names of places on the map, this person who is the hinge point of history, this person who, who elevated the status of the have-nots was an, was an uneducated itinerant carpenter and perhaps something more. Think about this for just a second. I would suggest that many of you came in here not fully appreciating all that Jesus has done. Right? That Jesus has elevated the status of women, and that Jesus has elevated the status of children, and that Jesus is the one behind the whole idea of hospitals and orphanages, and that Jesus is the one that elevated the life of the mind, and Jesus' thinking is what led to the scientific revolution, right? These are crazy ideas. We don't talk about these ideas. Jesus is the one who moved the moral compass. This is shocking stuff. I would say to you it's shocking stuff for this reason. We don't talk about... All that Jesus did on this front, because some of the other things that he did are even more amazing. Think about that for a second. This person has fundamentally changed the world. And, and he's changed it in ways that if anyone else just did a tenth of any of these, if someone else could be pointed to you and you said, this person Raise the perceived value of all the have-nots in the world. This person's thinking was catalytic to the scientific revolution. This person changed the moral compass of the world, what they think is what good looks like. If somebody did just a fraction of any of those things, we would, we would celebrate them. We would be in, in awe of them. And I am suggesting to you that we don't talk about some of these things that Jesus did because some of the other things that Jesus did are actually more amazing than that. We need to look at Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to pick up again there next week and let Jesus tell us what he thinks his most important act is and who he thinks he is. In closing, let me say that uh, today is uh, sort of the last easy chance for you to be part of all the different aspects of this six-week campaign. The devotionals, daily email devotionals will start in the morning. If you want to get in a small group, start one, get the material, any of those things. All of that uh, is out in the lobby. I want to encourage you one more time to invite your friends. Uh, we, again, two weeks ago, started this new service at 11 o'clock, the AA, or the O1, and it's off to a big start, but it's taken 100 people out of uh, the other services, and so we got an opportunity to backfill, so I want to encourage you, we are looking at the most interesting, influential, strategic, profound, disturbing person of all time. Invite your friends, invite them into your group, invite them to church, invite them to take a next look at Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious Son. And we pray that we would um, learn more about him and 
marvel. Father, I pray that, that some of the unbelievable things that Jesus did would come into greater clarity. And because of that, we would, we, our love for him, our understanding of him, our ability to follow his example, all of those things would grow. Guide us to that end. Help us, help us stop making Jesus smaller than he is and to see him for who he is. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.